Tonight we are in Romans chapter 11, Romans 11, uh, verses 11 through 24. So I invite you to turn there if you have not yet already done so. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. Let me read that for us as we begin. Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right. A lot in there. We're going to tackle it in one night. Uh, So let us pray for God's grace, yes? Lord God, we ask that you would give us your grace and understanding by your Holy Spirit as we approach your word tonight. Lord, we're humbled by your word in the depths of its truths. Lord, I pray that we would not be in error, but instead that we would understand your word, that we would apply your word accurately, and most of all, that we would worship you. Lord, we ask for your blessing in this time. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever had one of those days? You know what I'm saying. (laughs) One of those days where it seems like nothing really is going right. And maybe it's a day in which you were anticipating uh, a lot. Maybe it was your birthday and you're like, oh man. You know, I'm gonna wake up and do this and have and have that and and then you know all these plans or whatever. Doesn't matter. But let's just say you you wake up and then oh you accidentally slept through your alarm 
And you're like, man, how did I do that? Now I'm running late. That's why I'm going to jump into the shower. And then as I jump in the shower, oh, the hot water is broken. Now I'm just taking a cold shower in the morning. And then as you're taking your cold shower, ah, the power went out. And now it's dark. And now I'm taking a cold shower in the pitch blackness of the bathroom. And then so you quickly get out and you're like, all right, at least I'll have a nice bowl of Fruit Loops. And so you... And then you're <laughs> And you're left with Cheerios. Not Honey Nut. Just Cheerios. But you're like, that's all right. We'll make this work. And so you go into the fridge to get your milk. And then, no, someone left an empty milk carton in there. So you have to decide, dry Cheerios or water Cheerios? Orange juice Cheerios. Good compromise. And then you decide... Oh, I have to hurry off and get to school because somehow you guys now go to school and you drive and so you get to your car and then oh no and so somehow you fix it after it took you two hours to fix it let's say and then you get in your car but then oh on the way to school there was a car accident and then so it took you even longer to get to school and now you're late but it's alright you're rushing to your class you don't even know what that feels like and then you're like Oh, no, I left my binder at home that had the essay that was due in English class. Oh, and I left my lunch at home. And then you realize all of this, and it's only 8.30 in the morning, and you still have the rest of your day. Everything's going wrong. Have you ever had one of those days? <laughs> okay. Okay, he's like, all day, every day. Okay? Right? Sometimes we have those days, and it seems like, nothing goes according to plan. Like everything that we thought this day would go like this, it ends up not. And sometimes, maybe oftentimes, like for Kay, for instance, our plans our plans do not go according to how we thought. And really, if we think about it, why would they? We are not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We make plans, and we have expectations should go but often that's not the reality of what happens. Things do not always go according to plan. However, that is not the case with God. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And God's plan is always perfect and right. And God's plan always happens. His plans can never be thwarted. And his plans will always come to pass. And God has a perfect plan for all things in life throughout all of history. God does not have a plan B. But he has a perfect plan since before time even began. And this even includes his plan of salvation. And his plan to save and to redeem his people. And here in chapter 11, we see that Paul continues to argue that God has not broken his promise towards his people, but instead he has a perfect, sovereign plan of salvation for them. The plan of salvation for both Jew and Gentile as one people of God has been unraveling for generations and is continuing to do so even today. That Jew and Gentile, while they are distinctly different people, as I think that this passage makes clear, that they are two distinct different people, they are united together as one body in Christ. 
Just as a husband and wife, we say, the Bible says, that they are one flesh, right? They unite together. Husband and wife, they are one flesh. However, they are not actually <laughs> one flesh. That's weird. Okay? But they are also, there's two different individuals with two different roles. But they are one flesh. I think the same is true for Jews and Gentiles. That while there are differences between the two groups, we are part of one body the body of Christ. And I believe that is what we see here in this passage. And in this passage, Paul shows how Jews and Gentiles are different from one another, and yet they are united together as one in Christ. And he does this by showing God's plan of salvation for his people, as he's been doing for the last couple chapters. But this time, in this this passage, these verses, in doing so, what we're going to do is examine five aspects of of God's plan of salvation for his people. Okay, as we look, we, we could really spend weeks on this passage and doing it in one. I said, all right, let's, let's just kind of take a step back. Let's not get into the nitty-gritty of all the controversies and questions. Is it this or that or what? We're just going to take a step back and we're going to say, all right, let's look at five aspects of God's plan of salvation for his people and let's see how it is unbreakable. This is his plan of salvation and it always has been. Okay, so five main points. The first one is this, jealousy for God. What we see in God's plan of salvation for his people is the jealousy for God. Jealousy for God, verses 11 through 14. Allow me to read again verses 11 and 14 and listen to the jealousy for God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, that is the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We'll get back to that. Verse 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now as a reminder, God's people, the Jews, as a whole, have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And now there is a you might remember that there's a handful of Jews who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah and who are indeed children of God. But the vast majority of Christians, however, are Gentiles. And God, in his great purpose and plan, uses the love and the blessings that the Gentiles receive from God to make Jews jealous and to bring them to himself. Now, jealousy is typically seen as a negative thing, right? And a a sinful thing. And indeed, most cases it is. And so it it might seem weird, it might seem shocking that God's plan would be to make the Jews jealous of the Gentiles and jealous for God. But to be jealous for God is not a wrong desire. It's a good desire. As the Gentiles are experiencing the joys and the blessings of being part of the family of God, it stirs up jealousy with some Jews. God's desire and plan is to use that jealousy to bring Jews to himself. In God's perfect plan of salvation, God first has used the rejection from the Jews 
to bring Gentiles to himself and then uses the jealousy of the Gentiles to bring Jews to himself. I mean, imagine God's chosen people and rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and then seeing the Gentiles who were not God's people receive the blessings and the joys of being part of God's family. And you would think, well, wait a second. I'm supposed to have that blessing. I'm, I'm God's chosen people. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm supposed to have that blessing. And indeed they were. But they rejected those blessings when they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so to see the Gentiles enjoy God has stirred up in some Jews a desire to come to God and to accept Jesus as the Messiah. God uses the jealousy of seeing others enjoy God to call people to himself. This is all part of God's perfect plan of salvation. To use their jealousy of their enjoyment of God to call others to himself. And so I ask us tonight, do you live in such a way? Do you live in such a way? Are you living your life in such a way that would cause others to be jealous of your relationship with God? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you live in such a way? Are you living? Are you enjoying God so much that others would be jealous of that? They'd be jealous of your relationship with God. Now, in, in, in general, in your life, just going through your life, do you, do you ever get jealous of people? you ever get jealous of what they have? Like, what, what causes you to be jealous of them, right? Like, you, 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 you see that they have something, and you want it. You see that they're doing something, and you want to do it. You're, you're, you're jealous of them. Why? Because you see their joy. And so you want what they have. If they didn't enjoy it, if they they didn't have joy or whatever it was, then you wouldn't want it. Why would you want something that's not enjoyable? But when you see others enjoy something so much and you realize that you don't have it, it can cause you to be jealous. So I ask Christian, do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy Him? Does your life reflect that? Does your life reflect that you enjoy God? Are you living in such a way that causes others to desire God because you enjoy Him so much? Now the context here of this verse is specifically talking about the Jews, right? Like uh, of, of the Jews being jealous. But I don't think it has to be exclusive to Jews. I'm not, I'm not even sure how, how many of you guys have Jewish friends. I think it can be applied even in a broad sense. I don't think it has to be exclusive to Jews. A Christian, we we ought to be living in such a way that enjoys God so much that others are jealous of what we have in Him. That we ought to be living in such zeal and such joy that others say, wow, I want that. That others see your joy in God and say, I want Jesus. And we get so excited about things in life, do we not? We get excited, like, oh man, I just went to Disneyland, I saw Mickey Mouse in the flesh! I went to his house, it was crazy, you should have been there! You're like, no way! And you're going, you're talking about it, and everyone's like, oh man, I gotta go, I gotta go to Disneyland, I gotta see Mickey Mouse! 
right? Like, because you're excited, because someone gets excited about it, you're like, I want to do it too, right? Or, or, or you get something, like, you, you, you get a new, a new, shoes! <laughs> you get new shoes, and they're like, man, check out my kicks, and you're like, I want those kicks! Do people come kicks? Okay, thank you, Connor. <laughs> Connor, the other old man. So. <laughs> right? Or like, oh man, look at that new toy. Do you guys play with toys? No. Look at that. <laughs> the new one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, man, look, they're so excited about it. And she's like, oh man, I want that, right? Or even like relationships. We see other people's relationships, or we see it like in movies, and and, and we we fantasize about it, like, oh. They're so cute. Oh, hashtag goals, right? I need that. I want that, right? Like, why? Because, oh, that's so enjoyable. Like, like it looks like, wow, I want it. And we're passionate about it. We're passionate about our things. We're passionate about the things that we like. And, And our passion is contagious. And people want what we have. Are you passionate about Jesus? Or are you more passionate about Mickey Mouse's house? Like what, are, what, what, what do you find joy in? What are you excited about? What, what gives you joy? Do you love Jesus? Does your love for Jesus exude joy to the world around you? Can someone look at your life and know that your greatest joy in your life is your relationship with Christ? Unfortunately, many Christians and I include myself, live in a way that reflect joyless and burden-filled and bitter and prideful lives. Too often, Christians do not show the, the love and the grace of Christ to the unbeliever, to those who don't know the Lord, and instead they show a bitter and a prideful attitude, and they say, oh yeah, I'm filled, I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm a Christian, oh you, you don't believe it, well how could you believe that, you don't believe in Jesus, oh my goodness, how could you do that, how and they have this bitter and this prideful attitude, and too often Christians, they don't show joyful service to the Lord, Instead, their service is a drag, and it's a burden. It's like, oh, man, I really want to go, but I have to go to church on Sunday. Oh, man, I wish I could do that like, like, like those non-Christians. I wish I could, oh, that looks so fun. But, I, you know, I, I have to obey God. You know, I have to live a good Christian life. We ought to be living in such a way that causes people to want what we have. Christian, are you even happy with what you have in Christ? Are you happy? Do you have joy? Do you have a passion of the relationship that you have with Jesus? And you say, yes, then show it. Don't hide it. I'm not saying that we put on a mask of this, this perfect Christian life when we go around and say, oh yeah, no, it's great, everything's wonderful. That's what I'm saying. But I'm saying be bold to show that you are in love with Jesus and that there's nothing better in your life than your relationship with Him. Christian, are people jealous of what you have in Jesus? Does your relationship with God draw people in or does your relationship with God distance others from him part of God's plan of salvation at least for the Jews 
was to use their jealousy of the Gentiles to bring them to himself. So part of God's perfect plan of salvation, we see is the jealousy for God. Secondly, we see the promise of God. The promise of God, verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16, the promise of God. While God's people, the Jews, well, they have rejected Jesus Christ at the Messiah, God is not done with the people of Israel. God has made promises to his people, and for God to completely forget and to utterly abandon them would be for God to go back on his word. Okay, but that is not the case. God has and is saving Jews. And this is the remnant in which Paul has already talked about, in which we looked at earlier. And God has a plan to save Israel and to bring his chosen people back to himself. Maybe you heard it a few times as we were reading it. Look again at what Paul says in verse 12 and 15. In 12 he says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, and then later he talks about them being grafted back in. Now here, especially in verses 12 and 15, he's making a comparison from smaller to bigger. He's saying, look, if God used Israel's transgression, that of, of rejecting the Messiah, if God used Israel's transgression for the blessing of the Gentiles, which is to, to bring the Gentiles into his family, how much more will God bless the world when Israel will one day return back to God in faith? That's what he's saying. And there will be a time in which we will see a greater revival and repentance from the Jews. And we're going to look at this more in the next passage when Paul says all of Israel will be saved. All right, so stay tuned. But the point is that God has promised to redeem his people. And the rejection of his chosen people right now serves a purpose. And part of that purpose is to bring Gentiles to himself. And one day, however, he will call back to himself his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. And Paul also gives us some analogies in verse 16 to further this point. Look what he says in 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, his point of these analogies is that if, 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 if the first fruits, if, if the root of Israel is good, let's say such as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if that is good, then so will this, the, the descendants of Israel be. In other words, God will not completely forsake the whole up. God will not forsake the whole tree. God will not forsake Israel. But he will keep his promise to Israel and will bring them to himself. That's what he's saying. So what are we getting from this? That God does not break his promises. He does not break his promises. Even when it seems like it's been broken, or even when it seems like God has changed his mind, know and trust that God always stays true to his word. Are there times when it seems as if God may have broken, or God maybe has forgotten his promises to you? And it seemed like that to me. Know that God has never broken his promises. I'm going to tell you this, a little secret. 
He's not going to start with you. When we study Scripture and we see the promises of God, know that that promise is still kept for you. And you Do you trust the promises of God? All of them. What promises of God are hard for you to trust? Know that God does not go back on His Word and His promises are always true for His people. Thirdly, we see the grace of God. And we're going to spend some time here. I think this is kind of the the heart of this passage is the grace of God, verses 17 through 20. Allow me to read those verses 17 through 20 as we're talking about the grafting in. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although, okay, talking about the Gentiles now, and you, the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Right? Saying that, 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 that some of the Jews, the, the, the unbelieving Jews, were broken off so that these Gentiles could be grafted in. And he says in verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Talking about the Jews, yes. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. We'll stop there. Okay, we're going to get to the next in a little bit. So Paul now provides a bigger analogy, that of the Gentiles being grafted in to an olive tree. All right, olive trees can last, I'm no botanist, I don't even know if that's the right word, but in my studies, this is what I've learned, that olive trees can last for hundreds of years. Is that true? I think yes. Okay, anyone know trees? Yes? Okay, we're going to say yes. <laughs> but as they get older, some of the branches, they become less productive. Okay? Think about hundreds of years, branches, okay, they're going to become less productive. And so in order to keep the olive tree productive, they would take a a productive branch from a younger tree and they would graft that in to the old tree. So the old unproductive branch, right? Here's a hundred-year-old olive tree and here's an unproductive branch from it. They would break off that unproductive branch and here's a young tree with a nice branch and then they would graft that in to where the other unproductive branch was broken. Does that make sense? And this is the analogy that Paul provides for the Jews and the Gentiles. That the Jews, having not received Jesus as the Messiah and instead rejecting him, have become cut off from the spiritual blessings that should belong to them. And instead, the Gentiles, who had no claim of these spiritual blessings, have now been grafted in by faith and are now receiving the spiritual blessings of being part of the family of God. I believe that this analogy, how we're going to look at it in more depth, ultimately shows us the grace of God in salvation. All right, so we're going to spend some time here. We're going to look at four ways in which this shows the grace of God in salvation. The first is this, that by the grace of God, there is one people of God. By the grace of God, there is one people of God. There are not two peoples of God. There are not two destinies for each of them. But there's one people of God, Jew and Gentile, part of one olive tree. 
We must not put ourselves in these Christian silos thinking, well, we are these Christians and they are those Christians and so on. No, we are one family of God united together in Christ. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One family of God. We are one. We must not view ourselves as separate. So if I were speaking to a Jewish audience, I would say the family of God includes the Gentiles. But since I'm speaking to a primarily Gentile audience, then I would say the family of God also includes Jews. In fact, it says that the Jews will be grafted back in. Verse 23, and even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, all right, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. You see, we are one family of God and we have one destination together. Not two not, here's the destination for the Jews, here's the destination for the Gentiles. No, one. For all those who believe will be together in his presence for all of eternity. So there should be no disunity amongst believers. We are one family in him. And we are all saved by the grace of God. Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter. We are saved by his grace. Secondly, by the grace of God, his people will bear fruit. By the grace of God, his people will bear fruit. And it doesn't say that directly in this passage, but I think it does imply it. And where am I getting that? Why were the Jewish people broken off from the tree? He says, because of their unbelief. Right? Because they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And unbelief is the epitome of fruitlessness. The Jews proved to be fruitless as they did not have faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why were the Gentiles grafted in? He says, by faith they were grafted in. The Gentiles, by the grace of God, had faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We are saved by grace through faith. And faith is the first fruit of the Christian. Faith in Jesus Christ. That is where it all starts. That is the first fruit that we see in the Christian. And from there, you will see the genuine Christian continue to bear fruit. Genuine faith in Jesus Christ results in a life that bears fruit. James 2, let me read verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You hear that? Listen to that again. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now James is not saying that we are saved by our works. James is saying that our works prove the faith that we have. 
You cannot say you have genuine faith, but then no works, no fruit come after. He's saying you must have the works after that prove the genuine faith that you claim that you have. See, works are, are, are not the root of the salvation, but it is the fruit of our salvation, you see. Do you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this will be evident in the fruit of your life. Thirdly, we contribute nothing to our salvation. We contribute nothing to our salvation showing the grace of God. There is no way that we can claim that we have any part in us obtaining our salvation. It is all by the grace of God. He even says in verse 18, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Our only standing in salvation is through faith alone, which even that is given to us by grace alone. We claim nothing in salvation. And not only that, but he also says in verse 17 that we are a wild olive shoot. <laughs> you notice that? He doesn't say, oh yeah, you know, you're part of this, and, and you know, so here you are now. No, you are a wild olive shoot, he says. Apart from the grace of God, all we are is just a wild shoot that lives in destructive ways, which leads to our own eternal destruction. We don't often think of ourselves that way. But how true is that? That we're just this wild olive shoot apart from the grace of God. Christian, where would you be if it were not for the grace of God? And really, I want you to ask yourself that question. Especially if you are here and you claim to be a Christian. Where would you be if it were not for the grace of God? I hope you can identify that you would be in a very different place. Your life ought not be the same with or without the grace of God. It ought not be the same. Without the grace of God, you are a wild olive shoot. But with the grace of God, you were grafted into his family. You see, we contribute nothing here. But by his grace, we are made alive. We are no longer a wild olive shoot that will lead to our own destruction. But instead, we are grafted into his loving family. Thanks be to God for his grace. And fourthly, and last in this uh, grace of God, is that there is no room for spiritual pride. It is all by the grace of God. There's no room for spiritual pride. It's all by the grace of God. He even warns them not to become arrogant, not to become boastful, he says. Proud. See, the temptation is so strong to become prideful in our salvation. The temptation is to think that, that we are something. Because in reality, we, we are rich in Christ. We are made something, right? We, we, we are seen as so valuable by the Most High God. But let us not become prideful. For there is nothing that we have done to become valuable. But it's all by the grace of God. Which, by the definition of grace, by the grace of God, by definition of grace, means that we did not earn it. Remember, like you said, otherwise it would no longer be by grace. In reality, when you understand the grace of God and how you are saved only by the grace of God, it ought to eliminate all traces of spiritual pride. Like, what, 
What pride could you possibly have in yourself? When you understand the trueness of the grace of God, what, how could you saved by grace? Not by you. And yet too often, Christians will be dripping in spiritual pride and, and they will look down upon the unbelieving world. How ridiculous is it for any Christian to look at in the, to the unbelieving world, in this case the unbelieving Jew, but really any unbeliever, and to think of themselves as better because they're grafted into the tree and others weren't. How could you be spiritually prideful when by God's grace you were grafted into the tree? You are allowed a whole shoot. Remember, it's not you even who supports the root. It's the root that supports you. So why is there pride? We are saved by grace. So do not look down at unbelievers in pride. Instead, look at unbelievers with love and compassion. For if it were not for the grace of God, you would be in their exact situation, as would I. We must not become spiritually prideful. We must understand that we were grafted in because of the grace of God. That's it. His grace. Praise be to God for His grace. So in His plan of salvation, we see the grace of God. Fourthly, we see the severity of God. Fourthly, we see severity of God. We have seen the jealousy for God. We have seen the promise of God. We have seen the grace of God. Now we see the severity of God. Let me read verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, who are the natural branches? The Jews. Good. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Right? He's talking to the Gentiles. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in the kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The severity of God. Now, the love of God is quite a popular topic amongst many churches today. Right? The love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And for good reason. The love of God is extraordinary. It's the sweetest thing I know. There's nothing greater than the love of God. That's good. We shouldn't be mad at people for preaching about the love of God. Yes, the love of God. Let's talk about it. Let's be excited about the love of God. Let's share with others about the love of God. Yes, don't ever be ashamed of the love of God. It's so wonderful. If it were not for the love of God, I would have no hope for today. I would have no hope for eternity. I love the love of God. But we must not be mistaken to think that the love of God is, is God's only or even his greatest attribute. God has many attributes and each one is perfectly exercised and demonstrated by God. Not just his love, but all his attributes. And among one of those attributes is God's severity. Severity, what, what does that mean? It means the, the, the condition of, uh, of being severe, right? Like, to act severely towards someone. I know you can't use the same word in this definition, but I did. Okay, that that you are you you are acting severely towards someone. God will act severely towards those who have fallen. It says, God's wrath and judgment will be severe. 
We must understand that, that, that when, when, when dealing with the severity of God, we must not think that, that his love is his good attribute and the severity is, is his bad attribute, that, that, that somehow needs to balance himself like a yin and yang kind of thing. Like, oh, he has this amount of love and oh, he has this amount of severity and it's this perfect balance in the force. Okay, Ethan, that was for you. You like that, see? Okay, that's, that's not how we must view this. No, all of his attributes, all and perfect and just, even his severity. Do not be mistaken to think that that, that his severity is not real. Do not be mistaken to think that that this is just a, a scare tactic or, or that it's a it's an empty threat. No, his severity, it is a reality for those who have fallen away, for those who are not in Christ. And it is perfect in every way. And this is not something that we should ignore. And this is not something that we should pridefully think is not for us. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. I'll read it again. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. If God did not spare his covenant people, if God people in their unbelief that he will spare you in your unbelief. Do not think that the severity of God has no claim on you if you have not placed your faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, you will experience the severity of God. He will not spare you in your unbelief, he says in verse 21. Therefore, you ought to have a righteous fear of God. Understand and believe in the love of God. Yes, that's essential. But so is understanding and believing in the severity of God. God is not mocked. Sin will be punished. God deals justly and fairly with sin. And so he will with your sin. Your sin must be dealt with. My sin must be dealt with. But praise be to God that I know with confidence that Jesus Christ dealt with my sin on the cross. I know that. Can you say the same? Can you say the same? You see, God is is not only severe, though. God is gracious. God is merciful. And here, Paul points out that God is also kind. Which brings us to our last point. The kindness of God. Verses 22 through 24. The kindness of God. God is severe, yes. But he is not only severe. He is kind. He is full of kindness. And his kindness has a purpose. His kindness is meant to do something. What? And you say, oh yeah, I remember. Good job, Luke, Romans 2, 4. Yes, you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. That Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's what his kindness is for. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Has God's kindness led you to repentance? 
Has God's kindness led you to repentance? Have you recognized the severity of God that is upon you and the free gift of God's kindness that is offered to you? Have you seen the kindness of God that He would love you? That He would save you from your sins? And has that kindness led you to confess your sins to God and to turn from your sins and to follow Jesus? Has His kindness done that for you? Has His kindness led you to repentance? We must not presume on the kindness of God as if that's the default, as if that's what we deserve, His kindness. It is meant to lead us to repentance. We are not just to idly sit there and think, oh man, I'm glad God is kind, because I sure do not want His severity. So I'm glad that I'm going to have His kindness instead. I'll take that one. That one sounds good. Our default is severity. Why? Because in our nature, our default is sin. And in our sin, we deserve the wrath and severity of God. We do not deserve His kindness. We deserve His judgment. We must not presume on His kindness. But instead, in faith, we must trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ and repent of our sins. But know that His kindness is offered to you as a free gift. And if you refuse the kindness of God, he says you will be cut off by his severity. God cannot overlook our sin. Has your sin been paid for? Has your sin been paid for by Jesus on the cross? Or will you pay for your sin in the lake of fire for all of eternity? If you're not a Christian, I urge you, believe in the severity of God and believe in the kindness of God and let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. As we close, we remember that God has a perfect plan for all things. For all things, including His plan for salvation including his dealings with the Jews, including his dealings with the Gentiles. And in looking at God's plan of salvation, we see that we are to be jealous for God. And we see the promises of God. We see the grace of God. We see the severity of God. And we see the kindness of God. So I want to leave you all, everyone, with one question. This is for everyone. Everyone in this room. I'll leave you with this question. What does the free gift of salvation that God offers to all mean to you? I say that again. It's a run-on sentence. I do not care. What does the free gift of salvation that God offers to all mean to you? I'll explain that. What does the free gift of salvation that God offers to all mean to you? If you are here and you're not a Christian, what does that mean to you? That God offers a free gift of salvation to everyone, to all. What does that mean to you? Is it something that you are going to ignore? The free gift of salvation? Is it something that you are going to reject? God is offering you His kindness. He is offering you His grace. He is offering you His promise to save you from your sin. Will you repent and believe in Jesus Christ? My prayer is that by the grace of God, He would grant that to you. 
that He would grant you faith and repentance. If you are a Christian, I ask you the same. What does the free gift of salvation that God offers to all, what does that mean to you? Does it challenge you to live in a way that makes people jealous of your relationship with God? Does it give you confidence in the promises of God, knowing that your salvation is not based on you, but your salvation is based on the promises that He has, that He is, and that He will save you? Does it stir up a heart of humility, knowing that your salvation is only by the grace of God, and not even a speck of it is your own doing? Does it give you a heart of compassion for the lost, knowing the severity of God is real? And it is upon those who do not know Him. Does it give you a heart of thankfulness? Because He has shown you kindness to you instead of the wrath that you deserve. And most of all, Christian, does it bring you to worship? Does it bring you to worship? Does God's plan of salvation cause you to worship? To worship Him? To live a life full of worship? It should. That's where this is all leading to, is the worship of God. All these 11 chapters are leading up to that point. Is that verse 1. What does he say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Say everything. What he just said, these last 11 chapters, this is what he says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what this ought to lead you to. Worship. Christian, let God's sovereign, perfect plan of salvation bring you to your knees in worship and live your life as a living sacrifice for God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your sovereignty, for your plan of salvation. God, from the beginning of time, thank you that you have kept your promises, that they are true even today. Thank you, God, that you are God worthy of worship. Lord, I pray that as we see your plan of salvation for your people, that it would indeed lead us to worship you. That it would indeed lead us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us, continue to work in our hearts as we discuss these things for your glory and your praise, we pray. Amen.